0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmear's Day, January 29th, 2024. Reminder that tomorrow is National Croissant Day. On the show today, news, surveys, and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us about the opening of Illuminations back on this day in 1988. That thing was reinvented more times than Madonna, so this should be interesting. (laughs) Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that all music is in 4-4 if you stop trying to count it like some kind of band nerd. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Oh, Len, I am not good at music. I mean, (laughs) in high school, I, I started off by playing clarinet and then... My band director, not pleased with what I was doing with the clarinet, moved me to baritone saxophone, which is, mm. you know, you you have that strap around your neck and it weighs as much as a cinder block. And then, I, again, I was so talented at the baritone saxophone that, you know, in my senior year, he moved me to bass drum. You know, it just sort of... <laughs> You know, and I swear to God, if I'd hung in there one more year, I would have been the kid out on the the football field lugging the grand piano. This guy did not like me, so <laughs> I'm surprised he
0: didn't uh, he didn't assign you to uh, cannon. Because you have ever seen the have you ever seen, the, uh, you ever seen, <laughs> seen the the indoor performances of the 1812 Overture that use a cannon? No, and there's no. one dude there with like he's holding a torch, like now, what? now, now. No. <laughs> We have to think like you know like cannon, like you know any sort of field artillery is a really specialized piece of musical instrumentation, right) <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I've always seen the footage of one, of for example, the Boston Pops yeah. that plays along the uh, the Charles, and they periodically cut away to the Marine Reserve Unit that's literally sitting there with a real cannon. Like, yeah. And again, same thing, now, 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 know, now, like- now,
0: now, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so see, the the things that, that count as
0: musical instruments, it's kind of amazing. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to everyone who subscribes to the show over at patreon.com slash Media including Hypnostory and Panda, Aaron Lewis, Jason Hoover, Friend of Bettini, Sean Wallace, and Arno Libanage. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who ensure that guests don't get smushed in Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway by shutting down the conveyor belt Smasher in the final scene at just the right moment. They say they're proud of their 100% safety record on the ride, and a close second accomplishment is discovering that the Smasher makes excellent grilled panini. True story. Oh. <laughs> Things are dire in the cast uh, uh, cast member break room, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. That, on the other hand, great paninis. There you go. This is how George Foreman started with his grill. Mm-hmm. On to the news. Folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring Plans helps you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, Jim. Our, according to our friend Alicia Stella at orlandoparkstop.com, Universal Orlando has filed permits for changes to the Ollivander's wand experiences in the parks. And the speculation here is that is this is for upgraded interactive wands, which will be coming out when Epic Universe opens. Do you have any sort of like
1: idea of what an upgraded wand would be? <sighs> You know, what's been so fascinating to watch about what Universal has done, and remember, we, you know, the very first Wizarding World opened in June of 2010. And, you know, we, we had that amazing Ollivanders experience that just sold the replica wands. And then it was two and three years later, we got the interactive wands that made use of the Windows space. And that's what uh, we've been hearing about the third land. Uh, the, the Ministry of Magic experience that's supposedly being added to Epic Universe. Uh, And and it's also kind of ironic. I I think Alicia also reported on this. Did you see what supposedly the catchphrase is or how Universal is going to promote Epic Universe?
0: Uh, Remind me what it was. I saw it and I I thought it was pretty catchy. (laughs) This changes everything. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So it's just, I mean, just the notion of stepping out the new upgraded wands when that park opens and then, you know, sort of retrofitting them from the other park. It's like, oh, you know, they're they are they're not kidding around with this parkland. No, I
0: know. They've got a, a ton of stuff to do. I mean, uh, in, in terms of changes, we should do an entire show on just what we think is coming up there. By the way, you launched a, a new podcast about uh, Epic Universe, right?
1: It's, well, we, we we had a show, you know, that, that went dark after the pandemic, and Eric and I have since revived it. I guess what's especially interesting about this version of the show is Eric has never been, like you, just last year. Now, you had never been to Halloween Horror Nights, right? Right, yeah. Eric's never been to Universal, period. Oh, really? So the notion is that, here's a... Lifelong Disney fan who's finally decided after so many friends and family have evangelized about the great time they had at Universal Orlando that he wants to check it out. So that's kind of one of the gimmicks of the show. We have people... You know, who listen to the show, volunteering information about how the Herseys can make the most of their time during their very first visit. In fact, uh, we'll be reaching out to our mutual friend, Seth Kabirski fairly <laughs> shortly to bring him on the show. Because, you know, Seth is really kind of the Yoda of, of Universal yeah. Orlando, right? Yeah. But yeah, we decided to bring this one back. And it's, it's, so far, it's been a lot of fun. We, we uh, did, as part of that show, a sit-down with Carson Luter, the uh, one of the uh, universal creative guys who worked on Villain-Con Minion Blast.
0: That's a lot of fun. That's a great ride.
1: That's a lot of fun.
0: Alicia also mentions uh, rumors that Universal Orlando will be closing Springfield USA since Disney owns the Simpsons now and the rumored replacement for that is a uh, Pokemon
1: Land. Worth also sort of connecting the dots here. I don't know if you saw in just the past week or so The Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man also closed... In Japan. In Japan. I did see that, yeah. There's a number of things that are in in the works here. If they stick with the actual language of the licensing deal, the Simpsons Springfield USA could continue Mm -hmm. at Universal Studios Florida till 2008. 2020 2028 my mistake but that's what's interesting right now is that they evidently the, the two companies are talking and they could be sunsetting the deal prematurely I, you know in fact that there has been talk of you know it going down as early as the tail end of this year i you know i'm trying to get that confirmed i, I you know again alicia's got killer sources i just have sources
0: the thing that interests me there from a universal perspective is Let's say they close Springfield, USA, which is a chunk of land in that park, right? But they've also got the area over at the Lost Continent at IOA that's closed as well, and that's a that'd be two major lands and two parks closed for refurbishment at the same time that they're building a third park. That's just a lot of moving pieces.
1: It is the other thing to remember here is again we have a new head. Of Universal Creative, that's Mark Woodbury. Excuse me, Mark Woodbury, formerly the head of Universal Creative, is now head of all of Universal Parks and Experiences. And what's fascinating about that is Mark is a guy who believes, you know, we don't need to license other people's IP anymore. We have lots of great IP. So it's like, it's looking at those blank spaces on the canvas you just described, and it's like, what specifically owned by Universal would you drop in there?
0: I mean, Pokemon makes uh, makes complete sense there.
1: It does. All right, good.
0: So, uh, so we expect to see new and more modern franchises there. That's exciting. All right, over at uh, Walt Disney World, uh, the Magic Kingdom is adding a second performance of the Festival of Fantasy Parade, which is now setting off at noon and 3 p.m. from February 18th on. So I'm not sure, Jim, if this is for... Presidents Day week and, you know, just spring break or if it's permanent. And the thing that makes me think it might be permanent is that you and I have heard that Disney's plan to counter Epic Universe and all the stuff that Universe is doing uh, in the short term. And by this, I mean from like, you know, 2025, 2026 is uh, live entertainment in the parks. So but this might be a test of that to see how well that might hold up.
1: It could be, and don't get me wrong, Festival of Fantasy is a great parade. Yep, fantastic parade. But... But how old is it now?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's many years old. Uh, I don't know that it's gonna it's gonna be the thing that draws people uh, away from a new land in either of the existing Universal parks or from Epic Universe, right? So I don't I don't know there. But uh, you know, you uh, you you can only play the cards that you're dealt. <laughs> you know, this is true <laughs> for Disney. This is true. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I was uh, I was talking with someone about Epic Universe and you know getting and how Universals. You know, getting ready for that. And one of the interesting rumors that I heard was you know, Disney's always trying to to push people to slower times of the year. But I think Disney's realized that there's a limit to how much they can raise prices during super busy times and keep prices the same during low attendance periods, right? So right now, it's vastly more expensive to go to the parks in December versus like September, right? But Disney still wants that to be more balanced, right? They want to make sure that the last guest in the door buys the last hotel room and no one else no one else wants to buy hotel rooms, right? Because that, that's just leaving money on the table. But they can't charge $250 uh, to get into the parks during Christmas and they can't charge $2,000 a night for hotels because even if they could get it, the negative publicity would probably harm them the rest of the year, right? People would just be like, well, if that's what it costs, I don't even need to think about going in. So there's a limit to how much they can raise prices. So the, the thing that I'm hearing is uh, they want to limit travel agent commissions. So so the idea is this, like, look, there's no special skill required in selling hotel rooms during Christmas, right? Anyone could do that. Uh, we don't need to pay you 10%. What if we give you 2% for you know, busy times of the year, but we give you the full 10%? If you can move that uh, that client to September, and I'm thinking to myself, there's a couple of things. One is uh, anytime you have an indirect thing that you're trying to change behavior with, but it's not a, like it's not the direct carrot and stick. It'd be like if uh, I needed to lose weight, and every time I ate a candy bar, uh, Laurel smacked you in the head and told you to tell me to do better. Right? That's that's sort of an indirect way of getting what you want. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Len, it's like being in the cold water business and ticking off the people at Dixie Cup. You yeah. know, it's just sort of like, you know, I mean, look, you know, they, they, you have the people down the street literally building a state of the art theme park, yeah, and now you're going to, to, to screw with their commissions. You know, so how do you think this is going to play out?
0: Yeah, like what what is what step two in this master plan? Right, it's always the question I have for people. Who come up with these ideas. You know, and the thing that the thing that I am not sure of is that Disney realizes how much frontline customer service
1: is done by travel agents. Totally Totally. You know, they're the ones who, I mean, they're the ones who are evangelizing about, oh, you want to go to Disney World this December. That's when the Tiano's Bayou adventure is going to be open. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, it could, you know. I mean, they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting, you know. Like, oh, no, that, not a good idea, guys. Not a good idea. Yeah.
0: So that's uh, when I heard that, I was like, number one, that's uh, that's playing with fire. And like I said, it's not a direct way of changing the thing that you want. I am not entirely certain. Well, let's see. You know, let's see what happens.
1: Yeah, sure. Road flare dynamite. What could happen, Len? <laughs> you know, exactly. you know, it's like, I don't
0: wait. think they're going to do it. I think uh, I think cooler heads will prevail there. But uh, on to uh, surveys. Our friend Kevin sends in a Disney Plus survey. And I know it's not directly about theme parks, but Disney Plus is taking up so much of Disney's energy right now that it's actually crowding out. Spending on the theme parks at a time when Disney needs more spending on theme parks? So let's go through the uh, the questions here. Um, first one was, have you watched the Marvels in theaters? You know, yes, uh, no, I'm waiting to watch it in Disney Plus, uh, or no, I'm not interested in watching this movie. If there were a series involving the characters and world of Indiana Jones, how likely would you be to watch that series? Next question is, If there were another movie involving the characters in World of Indiana Jones, how likely would you to be watched that movie? And this is where it gets uh, a little bit more interesting. How soon after being released in movie theaters would you expect new movies to be available to watch on Disney Plus between 15 and 30 days after being released, 30 to 60 days, 2 to 6 months, 6 plus months after being released in movie theaters, or I don't know. And then... Here's the questions where I actually had to ask some of our friends in the industry. A couple of questions there. One is, how much of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny have you personally watched on Disney Plus? And your two options, your only two choices here were, I watched it and finished it on Disney Plus, or I watched part of it but didn't finish it. And so and so, I asked a friend of ours, who I'm, uh, who I'm not going to name, but who's in this industry and understands... Uh, These questions like what what's going on here? So uh, so one thought is, you know, Disney owns both Hulu and Disney Plus. So they may be trying to figure out which content that they own is better on Disney Plus, which is on Hulu. Should it be on both? Should it be on neither? Right. And speaking of neither. Right. Because remember, Disney needs money for Disney Plus. Right. Would Disney would would Disney make more money? By licensing movies like this to Netflix first, and then making it exclusive to Disney Plus. I mean, it's unlikely, but uh, but people point out that Warner Brothers is doing it, making their own content and licensing it back. So maybe he's dealing. Maybe Disney's willing to license content to Netflix if Disney Plus viewers are kind of lukewarm about certain things. Or the the other idea that came up here was um, viewers might be tapped out on Marvel and Star Wars. So is Indiana Jones a franchise that Disney can expand on, you know, for the next five years for content? The two other questions that I want to mention here um, before today, what was your experience with the Indiana Jones adventure ride at Disney parks? How does the ability to watch new movies soon after leaving theaters impact your subscription to Disney plus? And then the the last one, (laughs) as you may or may not know, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is part of the Indiana Jones franchise. <laughs> How familiar are you with the other Indiana Jones movies? And I thought to myself, telling people that the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny movie is part of the Indiana Jones franchise just reminds me of that the people who write surveys have seen responses that would make my brain hurt.
1: (laughs) Okay, let me just throw out one quick piece of information here that uh, might add an unusual color to to this set of questions. Okay, Um, I want to say it was a year ago, and this was ahead of Dial of Destiny arriving in theaters that Disney the folks at Lucasfilm announced that they were developing a series for Disney Plus based on the world of Indiana Jones but the interesting thing it, it was a prequel it was going to be about Abner Ravenwood the 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 legendary archaeologist adventurer who Who? First of all, his daughter is Marion, the love Ah, interest in the original Raiders, but more to the point, he's the gentleman who who mentored the young Indiana Jones. So so the notion was you could do a story early on about, uh, you know, it's set in this world, uh, but bring a new character on the stage. So uh, I'm just kind of intrigued knowing that they talked about that. Uh, but at the same time, I had heard because Dial of Destiny hadn't done as well as expected that, you know, th- this project had, was on hold. So the fact that suddenly we have this survey out there, this this is interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, and part of the reason I think why Dial of Destiny didn't do well is, um, you know, everyone knew that it was going to be on Disney Plus in, you know, 30 days or whatever, 60 days. So why schlep out, out to a movie theater to uh, to do it? And, you know, from, from Disney's perspective, they've got to market these things and they've got to cut a check for half of the revenue, you know, to the movie theaters. I mean, they need to look at those numbers to see what's best for them. So They do. They do. All right. Uh, Rachel sent in an Animal Kingdom survey after her last trip that asked her to use the following words to describe the attractions at the Animal Kingdom. And So these words are iconic, a personal favorite, immersive, boring, dated, insensitive, and not familiar. And I think we've seen um, we've seen these kinds of questions for attractions, uh, certain attractions at the Magic Kingdom, Jim. But I think this is the first time that we've seen this for every attraction in a park. And I actually went through, uh, and Rachel was was kind enough to screen grab all of the questions in the survey. I went through and looked, and it was literally every single attraction in the park. Um, so it's everything from it's tough to be a bug to the uh the walking trails in Africa and Asia like every single thing even wilderness explorers was uh, was mentioned um so it, i think this is one of those things where they're looking at what a, like a five-year plan might be for Animal Kingdom. I, I don't think it's going to get any updates anytime soon. No, you and I have talked about this.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I mean, face it. We, at the very last D twenty three Expo, you know, we had Josh Tomorrow on stage talking about the refined vision. Like, you know, no, no, wait a minute. This was the the D twenty three thing uh, that was at Walt Disney World at the contemporary the the weekend thing, but yeah, they would they they had changed out their original idea for uh, Land USA from the Moana Zootopia idea to the uh, Encanto Indie idea. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a park that, that I think, you know, they're looking hard at. A, in kind of a future world becoming a, you know, world discovery, world nature and world celebration, you know, that, that, you know, we should maybe be ready for, you know, a, a reinvention of a good chunk of this park. But as you said, as a, a five or perhaps 10 year plan.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, I think uh, we've said on, on previous shows recently that the next two parks to get big updates are probably Magic Kingdom and Hollywood Studios. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that Hollywood Studios is now the number two visited park um, in Walt Disney World. We'll see when um, the numbers come out later on in in June. But uh, I would suspect that for 2023, Hollywood Studios is probably the number two park. If not, I mean, if Epcot was number one, it was number one by like three people. So we'll see. All right, we've got time for a couple of listener questions. Here's one from Chris on our Patreon page. He says, uh, hi, Jim and Len, longtime listener here with a research question. Are you aware of best sources or, quote, Disney by the numbers type of information. Anything from the amount of Mickey pretzels sold in a year to versions of mini ear headbands that have been created. I think this stuff is super fun and would like to learn more. If it doesn't exist, perhaps someone should write it. Yeah, so so there's definitely a Disney by the numbers uh, website and book. Um, But if our listeners know of any other uh, websites that have, like, fun facts, uh, let us know. I know Disney PR used
1: to put these things out. They did, they did, you know, but, but but, again, it's Disney, you know, there's a lot of things that Disney used to do that suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, our competition can use that. Yeah, but if anyone knows, I mean, the uh, the Disney by the numbers website is uh, is super fun too, so that's good.
0: All right, here's a question from Chris. He says, uh, you guys t- talked to Jim Schul two weeks ago about in-ride vehicle audio. Doesn't Haunted Mansion also have in-ride vehicle audio? Is that a somewhat recent change? I seem to remember that it's always been that way. What's up with that? All right, so I asked I asked around, uh, and it seems like Haunted Mansion got interrite audio around the time of its 2010 refurb, which, I mean, for most of us, that's long enough. That's forever. I, I certainly think, like, like when I thought about this in my head, I was like, no, I think it's always had interrite audio, too, but apparently... It's only been for the last, you know, 14 14 years or so.
1: It's worth noting here that, forgive me, Chris, but when we're talking in-board audio, when Jim Shull was talking, we were talking about synchronized soundtrack music. You know, I mean, the the notion of you're you're moving through an attraction with a a music track that, that, you know, again, you know, as the coaster goes around a bank turn, you get an electric guitar solo. Whereas Haunted Mansion uh, yeah, since 1969, they've had onboard narration. For example, when I when I think of audio effects on the mansion, the very thing that Len talks about—the update in 2010—I uh, mean, just what they did in the, uh, the stretching room where you can hear the wood and, you know, and suddenly the little gargoyles around you start to talk. I mean, that's, that's genuinely enhanced audio. But, but again, I, you know, we, we have to make a distinction between onboard narration and onboard audio.
0: All right, uh, speaking of Haunted Mansion, James writes in with this. Uh, he says, uh, a listener had asked if the Hatbox Ghost counted as part of the 999 ghosts in the Haunted Mansion and I feel compelled to make a correction to Len's answer in order to prevent misinformation from from being spread. The Hatbox Ghost is indeed a happy haunt, and he's represented in the count of 999 ghosts. It's the exact same way at Disneyland. I'm not sure if Disney's trying to do some weird tie-in for the recent film, but the Hatbox Ghost being an unhappy haunt definitely seems like a shoehorned idea that they're just pulling out of thin air. I think they might be trying to justify the lack of care that went into the decision for this location. In the attraction, I'm not entirely positive. All right, so I, I, I included James's email here because we went back and forth for a while on this in email. And my original response was like, you know, I understand what you're saying, but Disney says that the Hatbox Ghost was not part of the 999 and wasn't one of the Happy Haunts. And then James and I both agreed that uh, in the uh, in the land of TV tropes, this is called retconning, right? Retroactive continuity, right? Uh, and that, uh, and, and that brought up the sort of the larger point. And this is something that you and I kicked around when we were at the MIT talk last year. And that's this, that at some point when Disney Imagineering or Disney, you know, management loses the thread about what an attraction or what a park is supposed to be. Sometimes the fans jump in and say, no, this is what this means. And we're going to consider it this way. Or we're not going to accept your definition, and 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 you know, and, and basically they reject the idea. And I mention this because uh, uh, we're going to talk about illuminations, and I think I think harmonious was actually so different from what um, Epcot was supposed to be for nighttime entertainment that it was basically a fan rejection of the entire concept.
1: So, well, I, I not to to get ahead of that series, but but. You know, you and I have talked about this, that that Harmonious was built with the notion that the festival center, the island in the sky was going to be built in fact that there's this amazing piece of concept art for the festival center where you can you know it's people literally standing on the third level looking out on world showcase lagoon watching harmonious and they're at the right level they're in the exact right position for all of the the holographic effects and that sort of thing to work and it's like from the moment they canceled the festival center harmonious was doomed because everybody who went up to the third level there was supposed to come down and evangelize to friends and family about, oh my God, that show was so spectacular from where I was standing, you know, and that you need to buy the special dessert package to get up there, and and we've heard
0: that we've heard that from so many Imagineers that I have to believe that that's the gods on his tree.
1: Yeah, they designed the show to play to that space, and when that space wasn't built, they were doomed.
0: I don't know if we've told this story on the show yet, but you and I were walking through. World showcase one night with Jim Scholl, and I was telling Jim like, and I think Luminous was playing in the background at the time, and I was like, "It's not a bad show, you know. It's, it's it's fine, right? It's not it's not our forever show, but but it's good." And I was like, "But Jim, have you seen the lighting package on Spaceship Earth?" And Jim Jim told the story of how on opening night for Harmonious, where you know Harmonious got you know it's it's round of polite applause, but ten seconds after that ended. They debuted the lighting package for Spaceship Earth, and everyone lost their collective minds. And he said he was—he uh, heard the story of how the uh, the Spaceship Earth lighting package was basically done by one person, one imagineer, who had the idea and had to install the lights themselves. <laughs> and that when that happened it was apparently like like if looks could kill this one person would be dead because everyone was jealous of that
1: <laughs> oh, and uh, let me just put one last cherry on on the sunday here think about it if they'd actually built the festival center You would not be able to see Spaceship Earth and its wonderful lighting package, at least from a good chunk of the Showcase Plaza. That you know, uh, because again, this this Festival Center that was designed to be built, you know, to be an add-on special place, you know, for you to buy access to, sort of like those little islands next to the bridge leading over to France or, or over by Italy, you know, for the dessert package and. You know again it would have been an entirely different reaction if you didn't have that clear shot you couldn't turn around immediately after watching luminous and suddenly there's spaceship Earth illuminated in a you know in the wonderful way that it is today so
0: oh, it's fantastic I mean I think uh, I think I said this when we were walking around like I think the lighting package for spaceship Earth is the best thing we got out of the 50th easily it's so versatile it's so Epcot. It's such a guest favorite,
1: and more to the point, they have turned around. I, 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 there isn't a, a three-month period that that doesn't go by that there isn't something new being introduced. I mean, for example, when we were leaving the park after a uh, Ginger Snap challenge, I forget which song it is from Disney Wish was suddenly playing, and they had invented a brand new lighting profile for Spaceship Earth that keyed off of that. So, uh, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, Len. Yeah,
0: fantastic job. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then when we
0: come back, Jim tells us about the launch of Illuminations in 1988. We'll be right back.
1: It's snowing here today in southern New Hampshire, which obviously makes it tough for those who are out there trying to make deliveries, which is why I'll admit I'm torn. Uh, By that I mean I I want everybody to be safe, to not have to be out on the roads on a day like today, but at the same time, I am really looking forward to that box that Nancy ordered from Green Chef, which is supposed to arrive today. Green Chef, for those of you who don't know, makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. They deliver everything you need to eat clean the easy way. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. And the beauty part is, by choosing Green Chef, you're not only choosing real wholesome foods that fill you up, you're also supporting a healthy lifestyle. Uh, Green Chef is about more than just satisfying your hunger. It's about feeling good with every bite. Now, long-time listeners to this podcast may recall that, once upon a time, we were sponsored by HelloFresh. Well, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, well, there's now something here for everyone. Better yet, listeners can now get a discount to both brands. Just go to greenchef.com 60DisneyDish and use code 60DisneyDish to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Again, go to greenchef.com 60DisneyDish and use code 60 Dish to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. So don't miss out on your chance to nourish your body with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes. Go check out Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. And we're
0: back. All right, Jim, you know how I feel about Illuminations, the single greatest nighttime entertainment event in the history of Disney parks
1: but not the original versions <laughs> no no and 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 also you know again I, you know what's what's in uh, very important to this story is this story starts in B.C., as in before cell phones, all right? You know, the, the, the fact that we could not hop on social media and say, oh, my God, this is a terrible show. Uh, because the interesting part of the Illumination story for me is that there were nighttime shows out on uh, World Showcase of Goon prior to Illumination start in January of 88. There was Le Carnival de Lumière, uh, which ran at that theme park from October of 1903. Uh, 1982 through June of the following year, 1983. The Carnival of Lighting or Lights. Well, uh, Lumiere, as in the filmmaker. You can remember they were leaning into the whole. Hey, look, we're, we're international team. Went right over my head there. Okay. There we go. No, and oh well, that's one of, the, oh well. one of the reasons why. The next name for a nighttime show, a New World Symphony, that debuted at World, uh, Epcot Center. Uh, you know, in uh, you know the, the June of. 83 lasted a little bit longer than Carnival de Lumiere. That was a full year versus just eight months. So wait, so was were both of these um, shows incorporating
0: classical music? Because when I hear a New World Symphony, I think of like Dvorak's, uh, you know, from the New World.
1: Not to bury the lead here, but you are hitting on an issue that they made some conscious decisions about how to make sure that this show was different from the one that was being presented over at the Magic Kingdom. Hmm. Which, by the way, the, the third iteration before we got Illuminations was the Laser Phonic fantasy that debuted in June of 1984 and then hung in there till January of 88, just before we got Illumination.
0: I love the name Laserphonic, if only because it evokes like 1950s film technology, like, you know, in spectacular rainbow color vision, you know, and you're like, you look back at it now, 70 years later, and you're like, what, what? What, what does that mean? Like,
1: you could see colors? Like, that's a <laughs> Laser It's Whatever it took <sighs> to make this seem futuristic. Okay, all of these earlier nighttime shows had individual elements that were successful. Uh, more to the point, each of them improved on the show that preceded them. The original Illuminations was the one that finally caught fire. And no, Len, I'm not talking about the <laughs> Inferno <laughs> Barch. Okay. This was the nighttime show that finally had the right mix of elements that surrounded guests with spectacle more to the point was now different enough than what was being presented over at the magic kingdom so that people, well, they couldn't go home from their Walt Disney world vacations without first witnessing illuminations. Now, where this gets fascinating is that when Epcot Center was nearing completion in late uh, oh, me, 1981, early 1982, the powers that be um, turned to Walt Disney World Ed- Ed Entertainment and said, hey, uh, we're going to need some sort of a nighttime show for the new park. Y- you guys got any ideas? And, <laughs> um, and so Walt Disney World Entertainment cold-bloodedly looks at Epcot Center and says, okay, this place – has to be different from the Magic Kingdom, so nothing uh, that we do here can directly compete with that theme park's Fantasy in the Sky fireworks or the Main Street Electrical Parade. So, so what does that leave us? All right, we got this 38-acre lagoon. Again, are the world showcases built around. Let's use that as our stage. So it, it was always it was
0: always supposed to be the lagoon as the the stage.
1: They tried for a while a parade. In fact, you remember when uh, they you know for the millennium they did do a, a parade around that park, which was kind of problematic because it was. In order for it to work, it had to actually enter from two parts simultaneously. Because again, it's it's one point two miles around, you know, World Showcase Lagoon. And and what they discovered is that when you launch a parade, like for example, you know, if a parade comes on stage, like say over at Canada, and you're at Mexico, you're like, okay, there's something over there. I
0: can definitely finish a meal of burritos, uh, chase it yeah, down with a couple of margaritas. By the time this uh, this parade gets to me over here, yeah. Well, not only that, but, I mean, you're putting those parade performers out there for, you know, for 30 minutes or so in the Florida heat.
1: Absolutely. But, but all right. So, again, get back to late uh, 1981, early 1982. Thinking of the Lagoon as their stage. Okay, it makes sense because Walt Disney World Entertainment had been staging the Electrical Water Pageant. Out on Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake for more than a decade at that point. And and those bodies of water, I mean Bay Lake is four hundred and fifty acres land. <laughs> and you know, and, and Seven Seas Lagoon is 168 acres. So they're like, oh come on. It's- World Showcase Lagoon is a bathtub in comparison. That's it exactly. Thirty-eight <laughs> acres you know will be fine. All right. So from there, they move to their first bad decision, which was, think about it. When you watch the electrical water pageant, you're typically on a, a piece of of you know land, either. Again, and remember, when they're making the decision, there is no, uh there's no grand flow, there's no wilderness lodge. It's just the poly, the contemporary. Yeah, you're at a resort. They know exactly
0: where you're standing, or they have a really good idea, right? You're not, yeah. you're you're not off in the woods near wilderness
1: lodge. Yeah, so it's just like, look, all right, you know that. Th- we have experience with that sort of thing, so this, you know, it's just sort of like, guys, come on, you know, there is no way we could create a show, you know, around that would play to the entire, you know, one point two mile circumference of World Showcase. <laughs> you know? okay. Oh no, that, that's lunacy! <laughs> all right, so you know, here's here's what we're gonna do. All right, we're gonna, you know, th- 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 okay. So all right, let's take our math. All right, if we look at the 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 you know the the electrical water pageant, it's made up of fourteen boats, each forty feet long, uh, you know, and that's roughly, Len, by the way, the size of an aircraft carrier. So you could, all right, you get, could walk across the barges from Mexico to Canada. There we go. There we go. So, so that was the decision. You know, they looked at World Showcase Laguna and they figured, okay, so you know, you know, when this thing starts. Uh, You know, people are going to come forward from future world. So what you just said, let's be smart. Let's stage it between Mexico and, and Canada. Uh, and let's think of our aircraft carrier, our, uh, its longest surface, its broadest, you know, it's, it's, if we were to dock it close to that area known as Showcase Plaza, you know, the, the closest to Future World. This is the thing, again, they keep thinking we can't do what we're doing over at the Magic Kingdom. We can't have these things parading around on the water Like the Main Street Electrical Parade, it has to be locked down in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Also, because the Fantasy in the Sky, Accent on Sky, features, you know, shells fired high over Cinderella Castle exploding in the sky. It's like, okay, so we can't do that, but we can do low-level pyro. The beauty of World Showcase Lagoon is... It's a mirror. You know, you, anything oh, you water. do uh. is re- re- reflected up. So it's like, okay, so low-level pyro. So, that you know, they've got their idea. They've got the, you know, their location of the show. But <laughs> at the same time, it's just sort of like, all right, and, you know, we want people to have a pretty view during the day. So these barges are going to have to come out at night. And, you know, and this show... You know it, it it they arrive at this idea that first time ever for Disney that uh, again, we have this uh, reflection of water thing we're going to do with the pyro what if we did the same thing with fountains? And and so they, they, they designed these dual-function barges where, you know, uh, you know uh, one side of the barge is effectively a fountain with, with 40 different nozzles that can shoot in 90 feet in the air and also has five different lighting set up or five different colors that they can put on dimmers so they can effectively light these things to, to all the colors of the rainbow. But on the other sideline <laughs> is... The pyro. Sure. And, and and think about it. It's fire and water. And they, they no. and this is the thing that they they never get credit for. They create know, this, this thing. You know, that you know, it's it's what was the McDonald's things where the hot thing says hot and the cold side says cold. Was it the McDLT? You know, the, 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 yeah, yeah. The yeah. McDLT. This is the McDLT of of nighttime entertainment. This
0: is what I love. Like they, they must have gone to like, you know, companies that make Marine fire extinguishing or firefighting equipment, like you know, boats that can fight fire, and they probably went to them and said, "Okay, how high can you shoot water with these pumps?" And they're like, "Oh, ninety feet. That's great." And then there's this like odd pause where Disney looks at the manufacturer and says, "Have you thought about shooting fireworks out the other
1: side?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have killed to be in that room. <laughs> why yeah why would you want to do that (laughs) you know all right, oh but, but anyway, okay, they they build four of these. All right, they, they these you know uh, mixed use, uh, dual function pyro fountain barges. But again, remember, this is also half this park is is international, and half this park is, is futuristic. So the notion is okay. What's our our technical component of the show? And they then come up with the idea of all right, we we take our four, uh, you know, our four barges, but in between we have five barges that use a rear projection and and what what's interesting about these these barges is each of them have four projectors dedicated inside of the rear projection so what's interesting is that the screen can be four separate images or if you're you're doing it in coordination, oh, yeah, yeah, you could use the one, four yeah. projections to do one giant image or and again, it's yeah, kind of remember this is nineteen eighty two Len. <laughs> yes. There were moments during the show where all five of these, you know, rear projection barges would suddenly coordinate and you'd have this a thousand foot long banner that had the same image or the same language. Yeah, we could do it now
0: with computers, but but forty years ago This was witchcraft.
1: Yeah, but it was witchcraft fueled with Apple computers. I mean, yeah. In fact, there's I, I want to say it's our 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 friend Martin Smith who does this, those wonderful videos online. But he actually has at one point in in the video about illuminations, he has a shot of the computer room, and it's like two lonely <laughs> 1980 you know Apple computers <laughs> on top of like you know the conference room table. You know yeah. this is how yeah. the show is being. The, programmed. This is it. But,
0: yeah, this is uh, It's not even the Mac. It's the Lisa. Right. It's the. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we don't. all right so anyway you talked about top of the show here does this feature classical music and yes carnival de lumiere did feature classical music because again the notion was this has to be different from the magic kingdom so and epcot is our theme park for adults so you know let's do classical music but at the same time the guys in entertainment are a little nervous because it's like you know families are coming here with little kids and if we Give them 20 minutes of classical music. They're going to lose their minds. So it's like, all right, what if what? What if we do the Venn diagram? We do the classical music, but we have it played uh, using a Moog. You know, the very same thing that 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 this, how the score is done for the Main Street Electrical Parade. So there's some. Wait, kind the of- Main Street Electrical Parade is uh, is a Moog? Organ as well. Oh yeah. Is yeah, really? I mean if you if you go all the way back that was one of the key gimmicks they and I'm blanking his name the the longtime uh, announcer of Disneyland the guy who who did the really terrible Mickey Mouse voice Jack Wagner you know, Jack Wagner, okay, okay, right. yes, he was the one who. Hang on, hang on, when they were looking for a different sound from the Main Street Journal Parade, you know, reached into his extensive record collection. And, Have you ever heard Baroque Hoedown? you know, which was performed on the Moog? So, really,
0: because a Moog organ is is such a like a 60s and 70s, no, instrument.
1: that's it's exactly super that's distinctive
0: it, sound, yeah, I, yeah,
1: but that's what they were looking for. Oh. In fact, they what they they wanted. Was that a little kid standing at the edge of World Showcase Lagoon with his family when they would hear that distinctive moog sound? Was like, wait a minute, that's like that parade over at the Magic Kingdom. Okay, I'll give this a shot. Wow. Getting to the premiere, the official premiere of uh, Carnival de Lumiere. The, and by the way, the, the, you'll love this, Let The subtitle for this show was The International Festival of Festivals. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs> department yeah. of Redundancy Department. Okay. Right. Uh, but anyway, Saturday, October 23rd. Uh, this, by the way, is with, right in the middle. Of Epcot Center Grand Opening Weekend. And yeah. so there are 5,000 celebrities and dignitaries that are, mm. you know, walking around World Showcase Lagoon and they're visiting all the pavilions. And by the way, they're seeing 24 different international performing group. And what's fascinating about that, Len, is what? that they, they openly opened, what, with nine countries? Yeah. A number of these 24 performing groups were from countries that Disney genuinely hoped would eventually join. And do pavilions are on World Showcase Lagoon. But anyway, they're they're eating their hors d'oeuvres, they're they're walking around, they're waiting till the premiere of Le Carnival de, de Lumière. But again, it's Central Florida and the weather is changeable. We're in hurricane season, October. Yeah. So go. suddenly the skies open. And but yeah. but again, Alice Davis was there for the opening and she described how she's standing there and says, we saw one drop of rain and the backstage area opened and hundreds of cast members poured out. All of them were clutching three to four different, you know, collapsible umbrellas quickly handed them out to everybody. And then escorted them into the nearest pavilion. And it said, the party never stopped. You know, she was like, and it was like, since it was classic Disney, only Disney of that time could have done something like that. But anyway, All right, rain stops in time for the premiere of Carnival de Lumiere, and these five thousand people move into that space between Mexico and Canada, and they're sipping their champagne, and you know, and just standing there with a wonderful view in World Showcase Plaza, and they really like this new nighttime show. Um, However, it's those pain in the ass paying customers, (laughs) those damn paying customers. (laughs) show up on Monday you know October 25th after the grand opening weekend uh, they're the ones who start to complain about Carnival de Lumiere you know because at the end of the day there's now 30,000 people crammed into to Showcase Plaza where 5,000 people stood yeah and a lot of them march by uh, guest relations, and a lot of them complain. And so this is when you know Walt Disney World management turns to the the, the Resorts Entertainment, and says, "Hey, you know that thing you said was impossible. You know, creating a nighttime show that would play to you know thousands of people standing around the full 1.2 mile circumference of World Showcase Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Walt once said, once <laughs> said." <laughs> It's kind of fun to do the impossible. You guys are about to have a lot of fun. You need to fix this now. So, C- Can you imagine how many
0: projects were introduced with that phrase after that <laughs> yeah. happened the first time? People are like, oh, that's good. I'm writing that down for the next time. <laughs>
1: All right, so on the next installment of this three-part series, we're going to get into the specifics as to how Le Carnaval de Lumiere first mutated into a new world fantasy and then laserphonic fantasy, which spoiler alert folks and let me channel my inner Doctor for Evil here is going to involve freaking lasers, len. Frickin lasers. You know, so lasers, lasers, so <laughs>
0: That is fantastic. I had no idea that this was uh this history was that interesting. Oh
1: no. I mean, just, but I love that they really did lean in to make it cutting edge for for 8182. I mean, they they were genuinely trying and, and it took them four tries, but whatever, they got it right. So they got it right. They did get it right. yeah uh, can't wait for the
0: next episode. All right, folks, that's gonna do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com/slash Jim Hill Media where we're posting exclusive shows every week. We already mentioned Jim's new podcast about Epic Universe, and this week's bonus video is content on Space Mountain with Imagineer Jim Scholl. Check that out at patreon.com slash Media. On next week's show, we continue the story of Illuminations. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be singing Suspicious Minds, Blue Hawaii, and Jailhouse Rock. On the opening night of the Myrtle Beach Elvis Festival this coming Thursday, February 1st, at the Hilton Myrtle Beach Resort on Beach Club Drive in beautiful Oceanside Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. While Eric's doing that, please go onto iTunes and radar show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim this is Len, we will see you on the next show.